Today on the Tech Reset Show, we have Dr. Kelly Mothner. Dr. Mothner is a clinical psychologist out of Hermosa Beach, California, a Dartmouth graduate. She brings a wealth of experience working with everyone from teens to young couples to married couples on a plethora of issues. We're going to unpack a lot of interesting topics today, ranging from intimacy to couples to distraction to how tech is impacting dating and dating apps and a lot more. Without further ado, please welcome Dr. Kelly Mothner. Kelly, welcome to the Tech Reset Show. How are you? I'm good. I'm glad to be here. This is exciting. So we like to start off with a question. What's one tech habit for yourself that you wish you could improve a little bit? Okay. I think the most significant one right now is when my children are around, not having my phone easily accessible in my pocket, in my hand next to me. Because if it is, I struggle not to at least be checking in with something. It's more about the aim to be present with the kids and the phone is the thing that I know gets in the way for me. And having that physically separate helps a lot because it reduces the distraction. Exactly. If I don't know where my phone is, I know that I'm actively present with my kids in that moment. No, that's important. I'm glad to hear that and probably something we all could do a little bit better at. Yeah. Great. So for those listening, Kelly's been working with uh, Digital Detox for over a year on various projects. We're thrilled to have her on the podcast and uh, thrilled to continue working with someone of her caliber. Today, we have a lot to unpack. We're going to talk about relationships and intimacy and technology and couples and dating and, and a little bit of everything. Kelly, maybe give us a little bit of background. How'd you get into the mental health space? What's your practice focus on? Tell us about your journey. Okay. Well, I have been doing private practice for about 10 years. Kind of got, I mean, taking myself back to an an undergraduate was where I just fell in love with psychology as a field. And the wild thing is to be able to actually take that passion and turn it into a career path. So I've been blessed to have a passion match something that I can actually do as my daily job. And so working in private practice over the last 10 years, there's been quite an evolution in terms of the demographic that I work with, but a lot of experience working with teens, which I have loved. And then as I have evolved as a practitioner in my own life, having kids, getting married, being married for many years now, I have also really fallen in love with the realm of relationships, couples therapy, working with adult individuals, parents. And so as my own life personally has changed, my practice has also gotten to kind of expand and grow as well. So it's kind of where I'm at now and doing the juggling act between working as a therapist and then being a mom to two boys. That is a huge challenge and something I'm sure a lot of listeners can relate to juggling work and life. And what a journey and that and congrats on your success. And it's exciting to see how things evolve throughout the years, right? And how client focus shifts a little bit as we both grow personally and professionally. What what are some common challenges your clients face? And, And maybe let's focus more on the adults or young couples less on the teens for right now. We'll probably get there later. But what's a typical client challenge right now? I think that a lot of my clients come in, many of them with a higher than normal, just anxiety level. When I say higher than normal, I mean, it is a level of anxiety that certainly negatively impacts them on a day-to-day basis. We kind of live in a time right now where 
everything is often heightened. There's a lot going on. There's a lot coming at you. People are trying to do more and more and more while also really valuing still relate, you know, close relationships and close connections and being present and being engaged. And I think so many of my clients come in with a lot of conflicting pulls a conflicting feeling of of not being able to show up fully in all areas of their life in all the ways that they want to be able to. And then that feeds an anxiety. It can feed depression. It can kind of feed burnout. A lot of people just coming in with that general burnout state. And then what follows from that is relationships suffer. And so you have couples coming in to address that in the in the form of the actual relationship and then individuals coming in because they're impacted by that in their lives. No, that makes sense. And we'll get to couples in a bit. So in terms of anxiety and just overall stress, you know, if we look at the last 10 years, has that just always been a constant? Or would you say the last two, three, five years, obviously COVID probably had a huge impact to that, but I guess maybe slightly pre-COVID. And then now that we're several years post-COVID, depending on on where you're looking. How have the trends just in terms of overall stress and anxiety, at least with the patients that you're seeing? It's a really interesting question because of course anxiety existed before and heightened levels of it were not an uncommon thing to be bringing clients into therapy. I think both in terms of what's evident in the influx of people seeking therapy, which has been on the rise, and maybe the how acute the anxiety is seems higher or more pervasive, like a more chronic level, as opposed to anxiety that can be more specifically attached to certain things happening or going on or certain work stresses or family stresses that creates an anxiety, but a pervasive feeling of it, almost like an angst tied to something bigger than just the day to day. Got it. So, you know, an acute anxiety might be, I know I have this presentation or I just lost my job. It's something very specific. And what you're seeing, if I'm hearing correctly, is a little bit more just in general, people are anxious, a little bit more depressed, a little bit more stressed. Is that accurate? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. How do you think tech kind of intertwines into that or is kind of phone, social media tech? Do you think providing meaningful impact to that increase in anxiety? I would say intimately connected. I don't think there's any way to separate the fact that there is a way in which tech has, I mean, not all negative, of course, but if we're speaking of anxiety, it has created a lot of like a loss of a lot of boundaries that we used to have between, for example, the private and the professional between family time and social time. It follows you everywhere. And so organic natural boundaries that we used to have aren't there anymore. I mean, just imagining a phone that can come with you anywhere you you go, you lose the natural boundaries that when you go to the movies, a phone isn't with you. We've removed all those boundaries, which I think creates like a permeability into people's lives for a level of stimulus, constant coming at everybody in a way that we're we're not quite prepared for. We don't necessarily have resources for to know how to really effectively navigate that on our own. I think without a real conscious awareness of how and where and what you want it to be a part of your life, it just then becomes a dominant force without us even knowing, without us even realizing it, it's there. 
Well, that was my next question. Are folks coming in very self-aware of that while like I'm hyper-connected, my phone, social media, alerts, et cetera, and this is stressing me out? Or is it more, I'm stressed in general, what's the culprit? And then after I'm packing and peeling back the onion, it's like, wow, like you're hyper-connected. You don't have any balance and any boundaries anymore. How self-aware do you think folks are coming into practice and seeking out therapy in terms of their tech impacts? I think there's a mix. I think I certainly have clients that come in and they really have not made the link between the way they're feeling, the particular struggles they're going through, the intensity of their anxiety, the pervasiveness of it, and how tech is variable in that. So I I definitely have clients where when we introduce that concept, it's actually incredibly relieving and there's like a hopefulness brought in because it's like, oh, that actually is something where there's room to make changes. And so it's awesome when we can bring that in. Now, in contrast to that, I also have clients that come in with the awareness of the amount of time I spend on my phone is not good. I'm addicted to it. Or I go on Instagram and it makes me feel like shit, but I I go on it anyway. And they have an awareness but they are so connected to it that the idea of making changes is actually really challenging. And there's a resistance because it's become so much a part of their life. Would a parallel be a cigarette smoker that understands the data and the science behind smoking being bad for their health, but they have the chemical addiction and they can't back. We could get in a different discussion on whether tech is a chemical addiction, but uh, is that a similar parallel? Yeah, completely. I think that there's the similar level of distress or cognitive dissonance between, I know this isn't good, I can't stop doing it. And that, when you have cognitive dissonance, there's no way for it not to create just at least a low level or a even higher level of distress because you're not aligned in your action and your feelings. And then what's the feedback when you present a fairly doable solution? Turn off notifications at night, physically have your phone not there when you're with your kid. Three or four basic tips that that are easy to execute. They don't cost any money and it's not a radical discipline. Is, is that uh, accepted or is that a huge barrier for, for many folks? I think more often than not, the small, small alterations that can be consistently done that really are something then that is turned into a daily habit. If we talk about it one week and they come back a week later for their session and they've actually experimented with it, which is often how I would frame it with them. Let's just observe what are the effects? Is it worth making those changes? 100% of the time, there is a sense of relief. There is some kind of like down regulation that happens. There's a greater capacity to navigate kind of other areas because they gained a little bit more freedom. So that the feedback is really reinforcing. Not to say that it's still challenging to continue to implement it on an ongoing basis, but the feedback itself, the reinforcement of itself is always really affirming of making those changes. Yeah, habit change is tricky, right? And I I think we're going to start seeing a trend where New Year's resolutions traditionally are diet and exercise, and now it's going to be digital well-being. And it's been that way for a while, but I think we're going to see a huge uptick over the next decade or two of in January, folks really making an effort and hopefully they stick with it. But habit change of any sort is really, really difficult, especially with something in your pocket that's a constant dopamine release. Yeah, absolutely. So you spoke before about how one of our strongest drives in life is our drive for connection. 
Let's unpack that a little bit, what you mean by that. And then I think that's a perfect segue into how technology, social media is impacting our ability to connect on a human level. Well, we are innately wired for that. The attachment starts so early on, which is why you hear so much, I mean, especially in psychology about attachment theory and that relationship between caregiver, early caregivers and babies and child and through development. But that, that need to feel like you are a part of something, that you have people that are attuned to you, that see you, that embrace you, that accept you. It is part of what contributes to longevity in life. And it, it is a huge factor in terms of outcomes going from childhood to adulthood and how it can positively or negatively affect overall well-being. Oh, absolutely. So do you see technology and social media helping with connection? I mean, the, I think the oh. natural reaction as well, I'm on social media, I'm connected with all my friends, I'm establishing great connection. But I think a lot of the data is pointing to every marginal half hour spent on social media as a decrease or an increase in loneliness. So what are your thoughts on, I guess, social media technology and how that either fosters better connection or impairs it? I think this question itself hits on just how complex the issue is because there isn't one clear-cut answer for sure. This is why the whole notion gets really gray because on one side, I think there's the undeniable fact that social media from Facebook, which everyone has known for a long time, to the ability to FaceTime and visually see someone, but you're virtual and you're on a screen, has connected people in ways you would never even fathom. And it's beautiful. It's incredible. You can have grandparents that live across the country connecting with their grandchildren in a way that they couldn't. So many positives in the way that it allows for, and maybe this is a way to define it, I think it has allowed for connections that otherwise wouldn't have happened to happen, which is why it's so unique and so special. Now, in contrast to that, I think in terms of day-to-day -day connections, in terms of what's happening in our life, in the here and now with the, the people around us, it is absolutely detracting from those. I don't think it's facilitating those. I think even among teens where it's used ap as a social apparatus, while I think in some ways it makes teens feel connected, I don't think it promotes connection. I think it often gets in the way of, I mean, this is nothing new, but having the face-to-face interactions or even the voice-to-voice -voice interactions. I think it replaces getting together and doing things and bonding in that way. And I think the same can apply for adults as well. I think in couples, it is very easy to escape into the world of your own phone. The phone can often serve as a third member of a relationship to such an extent because you can be sitting next to someone and it's as if they're not there, if they're interacting with their phone instead of you. I think those are the two ways in which it both does and doesn't. No, that makes sense. And I want to get to couples in a bit, but with adults in general, one thing that we've started to see a huge increase is people using their phone to avoid human connection deliberately. So in one of our studies, over 65% report pretending to check their phone, not checking their phone, but pretending to check their phone to avoid talking to someone else. And this isn't a teen, this is adult. So what do you think the reason for that is? Is this just a convenient tool to avoid talking to the other mom that maybe you don't click with as much? Or are people just very 
very anxious about having dialogue in person post COVID? Like, why are over 65% pretending to check their phone to avoid having a real conversation? Yeah, it's actually an unsettlingly high number. And I think what the tech does, what the phone offers, is a very familiar and understandable reason not to interact that someone else would accept because it's so familiar to them as being a reason for not being able to connect. And so it it certainly offers up this easy out. And we tend as humans to go for easy outs when they're available. So if you just don't want to have an interaction or you feel nervous about it and want to avoid it or you're just too tired, I don't even think it just is used by people with social anxiety. I imagine some of that 65%, there's a social anxiety component. But I imagine there's a whole boatload of people where it's not social anxiety, but it's like, I just don't want to deal with that. And this is a generally acceptable excuse not to interact. Well, I think you hit it spot on there. It's a genuinely acceptable because everyone else is doing it. So the, the other 65% are, are avoiding each other, whether it's on the bus or whatnot. We have heard some feedback of, I guess, potentially good uses of that. As someone, a female on a bus that doesn't want to get hit on by this guy that's looking at her, she could distract herself and pretend that she's on a call or on a phone or a guy that's not just a one-way street. I could see that, but if that were the case, the data would show much, much fewer responding to that question. If it were only used in emergencies, I think it would be 10% versus 60%. Yeah. Right. It'd be, it'd be a lot more. Yeah, it's interesting. And in terms of social media, we're in, on another episode, we're going to unpack teens and parenting and that complicated world. But even for adults, I think one problem this kind of ties into loneliness and connection is people are comparing themselves to influencers and they're comparing themselves to everyone else and keeping up with the Joneses. And then that's making them more lonely because they're seeing this perception of this other life that might be better than theirs. And that's making them sad. What's interesting is that the vast majority of what they're looking at is either completely fake or very, very exaggerated. So have you seen any of that with your work where folks are just feeling less about their own life due to a comparison? Oh, for sure. So before it was such a dominant force, there was already the struggle with comparing. I mean, as humans, we have a tendency to engage in comparing as a way to determine where we rank in the hierarchy. Like that is just kind of an inborn tendency that takes a lot to really just keep in check. What happens with the social media is I think it takes that tendency and puts it on steroids because you have at your fingertips every visual opportunity, and it's often a visual comparison, that's the easiest way to do it, to be fed an ongoing constant stimulus that provides a comparison. And the challenge is, you're right, that often this is not really real life being shown in these, in these pictures, in these images. It's whatever is going to promote that person the best. But the storytelling that goes along with it is endless because you can make anything up about what you're saying and there's no way to validate it or ensure its accuracy. So I think it just sets it up for anyone that is being constantly exposed to that to have boundless amount of kind of opportunities to engage in that toxic type of comparing. Yeah. So if I'm hearing correctly, it's a lot about the internal talk track. You're talking to yourself in a negative way based on seeing these images that may or may not be true. And we're of a pretty big belief that the majority of the ones, so we kind of lump influencers into completely fake, right? Somewhat real, but dangerous. And then the real ones, they're still really only showing you what they want you to see, 
right? And this isn't just influencers. This is, I think, by nature, most of social media. Of course, you're going to put the most flattering photo and the amazing family shot and the highlights of the vacation. You're not going to show the 90% of the other time where it was a disaster or you failed. That's just not how social media works in some cases, but the vast majority, it doesn't. And so yeah. when you're looking at that and you're just endlessly scrolling on the, this perception of these amazing lifestyles, amazing travel voyages, et cetera, it could get really down. What would you tell a patient then that comes in and that's one of their challenges? You know, look, I'm constantly looking at these lives that are better than mine. I mean, the hard immediate step that has to be taken is if there is a direct stimulus causing a distress, you do have to either remove, eliminate, or reduce it before you can then do anything else. Because if you have it constantly coming at you and you're simultaneously trying to build a solid sense of your own self, it's so distract you, you can't do both at the same time. So it does require having to absolutely set a boundary with exposure and then shift all of that energy and shift all of that attention to building that person's sense of who they are from the ground up, then actually engaging in their real lived lives so that they can start formulating for themselves a sense of what's important, what their priority priorities are, what do they want to engage in and start actively helping them turn those intentions into realities. But you can't it's very hard to do that if the toxic exposure continues. No, absolutely. No, it, it sounds complicated and I'm glad that you're doing this work with a lot of folks. Not even on the negative side of negative influencers. One thing we argue is, look, I'd rather be out at the concert myself than watching someone on TikTok experience the concert. So, you know, go out, have connection, have real life experiences. It's way more fun than watching someone else do it. Yeah, that kind of sums it up. So let's get into relationships and, and couples. And I think a good starting point, let's go kind of chronological from, let's start with dating apps. How have dating apps impacted, I guess, dating and relationships? And do you see people coming in stressed? We, we see a lot of data coming in of folks being overwhelmed by dating fatigue, swipe fatigue, et cetera. What are you seeing in that regard? How are dating apps and technology impacting positively or negatively the ability to find meaningful connection. Let's start there and then we'll advance to relationships and then couples that are married. So I think in terms of what I've noticed, the most common thing that comes up with the dating app specifically is a cycle of turning to that as a means to meet somebody and cycling through a stage of being engaged with it, then entering overwhelm and burnout, and then having to completely take a pause, stop it, remove oneself, and then a little allowing some time pass, and then saying, okay, I'll try it again. And then the cycle repeats. And it is the most common cycle, a male, female, there is something about the way dating apps work where it does offer a lot of options, but it is a setup for almost over dating and like truly a, a level of back and forth messaging, so many potential people that you're trying to determine if you want to go on a date with and then doing three, four dates in a week, unsustainable levels. And so it, it rapidly enters the zone of this is turning into a active stressor in my life to I can't do this anymore. And then that's the repeat cycle that happens. Then they'll take a detox for a week, a month, six months, and then come back to it 
because that's the source. Are you seeing any successful scenarios where someone comes in, it's like, wow, I met an amazing relationship and we met on Bumble or Hinge? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you've got all of those anecdotes. I've been personally with friends that have certainly found their partner that through that route. I think what I'm seeing in therapy, though, is more often the stress around it than the stories of I successfully found my partner and we're just off to the races and it's all, all positive. But not to say you have hundreds and hundreds of people that have actually found long term partners. For sure. I actually met my now wife on this was pre dating apps. I'll date myself a little bit, but way back in the day, it can work. So are the stressors more the mechanics of it and the overwhelming swiping and the logistics of managing so many dates? Or and is it the, I guess, lack of quality or connection? I think those are connected. It's hard to, I think, facilitate that initial opportunity for deeper connection when you're simultaneously trying to do that with three, four, five, six, ten people at a time. Just imagining the energy required for that. I mean, connecting is not easy. It demands intention and energy and emotional engagement. And so I think the dating acts do set up a context where that's happening on many, many fronts. And so the actual connecting, you might be on a date with somebody, but in the back of your mind, you may already be comparing that person with the person you went on a date with the day before or the person you're going to go on a date with in two days. So I think it's hard to ensure that the connecting is actually happening when you have those opportunities. Well, that's where I was going to go next. Do you see an issue of just constantly comparing and looking for the next best thing, right? So since there's so much volume, it's hard to narrow down and micro pick specific flaws. Is that real or am I making that up? I would say that's, that's absolutely a factor here. Uh, it would hard, it, it's interesting. It kind of goes back to the previous question around comparison. That's we were talking about it relative to you comparing yourself to others. But if you're constantly fed all of these different pictures and images of people and information about them and seeing what they're doing, and then you're, sw- or you're swiping through, that's all about comparison. The only way swiping works is if you're clearly just making a distinction between the person you just swiped versus the person you're looking at right now. So it's all comparison based. Absolutely. And, and some of the research we've done, at least anecdotally through some other studies, it seems like the quality of dates sometimes deteriorates for an interesting reason. Because since you have so much volume sometimes and you're going on so many dates, your talk track becomes redundant. By the fifth date in two weeks or maybe in one week, heck, you've gone through the same openers, you've gone through the same icebreakers that you're a little rusty and you're a little bored and you come off uh, little less interesting. That was one complaint folks had. And then I think another is just not having a good basis. And I think some of the sites have done a better job of this now, but not have any good understanding of what others are looking for. So are we both in the same page? Are we both looking for the same thing? Are you looking for a hookup? Am I looking for a relationship? Are you looking for yeah. marriage? Am I looking for yeah. something serious? And yeah, there's some sites that are kind of niche and specific towards, or maybe skew a little bit more towards one goal. But mm-hmm. on on the broader sites, have you seen that too, where folks will go on a date and it turns out they're really looking for something completely different and it's a, a big waste of time? I have found that to be one of the most emotionally devastating pieces of it when there is either a misleading happening in terms of what is being communicated to get the date 
versus what actually is the intent or the desire of, of one person versus the other. And I think there is a lot of, I guess we could say, heartbreak or disappointment let down upon discovery of completely different visions of what one person was seeking versus the other person. Which seems counterintuitive. I mean, if you're the individual that's misleading someone just to get into the date, like it's going to end at some point. It's kind of a waste of, of both of your time. And it, and it seems like the sites could do a much better job of just being very transparent up front of, here's what I'm looking for. Great. Let me match with those folks and save everybody a little bit of time. Maybe it's easier said than done, but. Yeah, no, that would save a lot of people from the letdown that they often have to go through first. So what about someone that's potentially socially anxious, you know, isn't going to have as many opportunities to go out and meet people in person without a dating app? Do you see that as being a huge benefit for you know, an individual that fits that type of profile? I absolutely feel like that is an example of how it is promoting connection when we're talking about there being barriers to having much opportunity for connection. That offers it really does offer it. It facilitates it. And I think that's one of the blessings about it that I think is we certainly don't want these things to go away because there's a lot that it can give. But there's something about needing to tweak how they work or who they target or the way they match as you're referring to these adjustments that would make them far more effective at meeting different needs. And that need of just the space and opportunity to potentially connect with someone is a valid need. Absolutely. So there's some good uses there. I was having lunch with someone the other day and we were talking about this topic and their feedback was, look, where do I meet someone if it's not on an app? Picking yeah. up on someone in a bar, like that doesn't exist anymore, or at least in this person's eyes, it doesn't. So, I mean, what are your options after, I guess you're out of college at, at work, through a friend, running in at the grocery store? How do people meet and find love if it's not on an app these days or through a, a matchmaker, some type of service? Yeah, it's one of those crazy, I guess, evolutions where it's become so common as, as a default way that it is almost weird, <laughs> weird when someone says, oh, yeah, I just met somebody at a dinner spot. Like I just met, yeah, I met someone at the bar and we're dating now. That that actually has become less common. That's wild. Yeah, I was at a party actually last Christmas, and the couple I was talking to, they had met at a bar probably ten years ago, and they're married now. And everyone was just like almost silence, glass drop. Like you met at a bar. Like what is that? So we have challenges with connection. People are meeting. They're getting a lot of volume. The connection's really not there. We're having mismatches of intention. In some cases, they're finding it, but for whatever reason, let's say they do get a connection, whether it's mm -hmm. online or off or whatever. They get married, yeah. fast forward five, 10 years. They're, I don't know, let's make this up in their 30s, 40s. What challenges are you seeing? What's, I guess, let's separate that out. So the couples that you're working with, what are they coming yeah. to you for? And then how is technology impacting intimacy and uh, connection and relationships? So I think one of the most common refrains that I'll hear from couples is they're seeking therapy to improve communication. And is that because they have a challenge with communication or they're being very proactive and they want to optimize? Both. Uh, well, okay. more often they're having a challenge with it. Okay. Some are proactively seeking out because they want to improve and build on something. But I will admit most people seek couples therapy when they've gone past the point of it being proactive and it's more reactive. But on either side, it's still this, 
we want to fix our, our communicating because we are identifying our communication as the at the crux of our relationship issues. And so that kind of separate and apart from tech exists a re- as a really ongoing, challenging component of long-term intimate relationships and is an, an active source of conflict or tension. And it really does. It takes building skills around how to effectively communicate, how to effectively listen, how to self-regulate so you can actually show up in difficult conversations without being reactive or defensive. There's all these components that in and of themselves is enough in terms of how challenging that work can be to really address the issue and make improvements and build a solid foundation for communicating with each other. Throw in tech. (coughs) And I think it makes that harder. I think it just makes the context that couples are working with harder because either it's diminishing the opportunities they have to communicate simply by the distracting nature of being on your phone or being on your computer or doing emails or being on social media or playing chess or like all the options. There's so many. So it reduces just the amount of time available to connect. There's also an avoidance factor that it's an easy way to avoid problems. So then you can talk yourself out of even having to communicate about whatever's going on because you just kind of go into your phone, your tech and whatever form it is and distract yourself out of it. So I think tech maybe to sum it up, exacerbates a familiar problem that can arise in couples. A lot to unpack there. That's really helpful. So to clarify, though, is it more so that a couple is having some other issues and so they're going to tech because it's a distraction? Or is tech just so addictive? Tech's a broad term. Let's say their phone or social media is so addicting and it's a, such a such an attractive pull that it's creating the issue and it's pulling them away. I think that's the most common start of it. I think that the dominance of it in either partner's life or both partner's life kind of can contribute to a level of disconnection. And then it can snowball into it's not only the source of the disconnection, but then it is sought out instead of actually coming together. No, it makes sense. I guess chicken before the egg, and I'll double down on that a little bit more. Someone's distracted. They're looking at their phone. Is that because, oh my goodness, the phone's so exciting and the game I'm playing or social media is so exciting? Or are they a little bit bored in the relationship? Or is that too difficult to generalize? It just depends. You would almost have to say they both have to be true. And maybe this goes back to what is challenging about tech is there are endless possibilities for entertainment there. Way more entertaining than your partner. (laughs) Well, that's what I can say. You're almost up against that reality. That's a fact. There's so many forms of entertainment you can seek out on that. So as a partner, you're competing against that in some ways. Well, yeah. And going back to dating apps, and I don't want to misquote this stat that we have. I'll I'll look it up. We'll put it in the show notes. But it was a fairly meaningful percent of people on dating apps are married. Oh, God. Yeah. Yeah. So and it's somewhere north of 25%. Um, so it's, it's a big number. It's not 90%, but it's not 
3%. So it was a meaningful number. We'll get clarity on what that actually was. And this isn't just the Ashley Madisons, you know, they're out on the bumbles, on the hinges, not being as fully transparent about their status. So social media tech kind of pulling away from the connection relationships. And in some cases, I'm guessing it could be pretty benign, you know, yeah, we're a little, we don't spend as much time together, but you know, we're just a little distracted, but we still kind of come together. And then it could snowball to your point where all of a sudden, wow, like we're in bed on our phones for three hours and we're never really talking. We're at the dinner table. We're not talking. We're on a date. We're not talking. And am I correct? My rudimentary understanding of psychology, the, the breakdown in communication, that's really what starts pretty much all problems in marriages. It's at the crux of it for sure, because what you hope couples therapy provides as an antidote to that is being able to actually unearth and address what isn't being talked about. Makes sense. So you have a couple in your practice then and you unpack that, wow, okay, you're, you're both being pulled on these devices, on social media, et cetera. Is that an easy juncture then where it's like, wow, we realized we're pulled a little bit too much and this is the crux of it. Let's tame that down. Or is it more, wow, we've really realized that there's some deeper issues? Well, what's interesting is if you start with that as an initial change to make, if that's removed as the go-to thing that is is either been the source of it and then has become a symptom, you know, like however it's evolved. But if you make a tweak in how much that is taking up space or detracting from the relationship, what that then allows for, which is both in a way good and bad, you then have to confront what is actually going on in the relationship and go towards the source of pain or the source of resentment. It can be defined as it's being used as a coping mechanism in relationships sure. to kind of maintain the status quo in some ways, even if it's problematic. And so removing it means you're making a significant change that's going to upset the equilibrium. Couples therapy often gets go really going once the equilibrium is upset. That makes sense. Wow, that's fascinating. And I know you also do at least some work with intimacy and, and sex therapy. Do you see technology impacting intimacy in a way other than the distraction and, and purely we're spending more time on it? Is it negatively impacting or positively impacting? I guess to reference what we just talked about before in terms of a partner's competing against all that tech can offer in your hand, that applies in terms of sexual intimacy and what you can be exposed to at your fingertips versus what your partner can or can't provide. How do you compete with that when that is there whenever you want it versus only there when you both are in kind of the same state of mind and there's a desire on both? There's so much complexities to actual intimacy in couples. But with tech, you don't have to deal with any of that. It's uh, much more clear cut. That's another piece that's having to be navigated with. We're going to have a follow-up episode and we're going to dive all into AI girlfriends, chatbots, porn addiction, everything. So we're going to have the intimacy episode in, in a couple months. I think that would add a lot of value. Fascinating. Well, Dr. Mothner, this has been great. We like to end with one question. We, we started with what's a habit that you wish that you could improve. What's a hobby completely unrelated to phones and tech that you wish you could spend more time on? I would say, and actually it's related to tech because... It requires both of my hands. It gets me away from tech, but cooking. I, I love that there's a process. I love that there's an outcome. I love that you can enjoy it with the family. So I think that's where I'd love to spend more of my energy. And the best part of that is it, it does not require me to be actively using any technology simultaneously. 
I love that. So do you print out the recipe or do you have the iPad? It's funny you say that. I print out recipes because I find if I'm trying to do it on my phone, I don't want to have to be scrolling. I, I want my hands of garlic on them. Like I print out my recipes. I still adhere to that. So that's why it's like a safe zone. I'm the same way. I also don't like my $2,000 iPad or laptop to have garlic grease and cilantro covered all over it. Yeah, exactly. Great. Well, Kelly, a pleasure as always. Thanks so much for coming on and everyone look out for a follow-up episode. We have a lot more to unpack with Dr. Mockner. Great. Sounds good. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Tech Reset Show. Tech Reset is brought to you by Digital Detox, who helps people in over 80 countries improve tech life balance. You could learn more about our products and services and also get your free Dora score at digitaldetox.com. We appreciate your support and look forward to seeing you again soon.